Hello, everyone. I'm Al Daldegan, creator and producer of the Leaders, Innovators, and Big Ideas podcast, supported by Rainforest Alberta. This podcast showcases the people who are working to improve Alberta's innovation ecosystem. The host for this episode is Wumi Adekambi. Wumi immigrated 10 years ago from Nigeria, where she was a post-secondary instructor and researcher and led a youth empowerment nonprofit. Wumi is passionate about people, information, and solutions in that order. Wumi is the organizer and host of Immigrant Techies Alberta, a tech enthusiast group for skilled immigrants who are in or are interested in pivoting to tech careers and startups. Let's get right to Wumi's conversation with Gary Gunthorpe and Mark Botkin. Take it away, Wumi. Hello, welcome everyone to today's episode of Rainforest Podcast. My guests today are Gary Gunthorpe and Mark Botkin. Welcome to the show, Gary and Mark. Hi. Thanks. Hi. Hi. It's so great that um, you guys are here to talk about how you have been involved in Alberta's innovation tech ecosystem. And um, I'm just excited to hear from your wealth of experience, things that have worked, things that haven't been working in this ecosystem. So I'll just, as a start, let me just, can I, can you introduce yourself starting with you, Gary? Well, I'm Gary. Basically, I've been involved in startups, electronics mainly, uh, for over 40 years in Calgary. Been involved with 26 of them. Um, still involved with five of them, and currently I'm just mentoring young start young startups, not necessarily young people that uh, are trying to trying to make headway here. Thank you, Gary. Mark, I understand you are also working. I guess you are one of the people Gary is mentoring right now. I understand you're working on a particular product as well. So tell us a little bit about yourself and how you've been involved in this um, innovation ecosystem. Well, I've been uh, involved in Alberta for quite a, a few years. Uh, my my uh, history in working with startups and in starting startups uh, goes back almost 40 years now. Uh, I started out at the University of Alberta doing medical research and I uh, got hooked on computers and computer designs and software and ended up being invited to join a company that was building a computer. So I spent some time doing that and uh, had some adventures there. Then I went on to work uh, on a number of other startups uh, that involved uh, a lot of it was uh, either high-speed telecommunications or data compression, that sort of thing. I uh, became involved with uh, a fellow in BC uh, in about the middle of the 80s and uh, we built a, uh, a mobile concrete conveyor that was uh, a fly-by-wire design, uh, one of the first heavy equipment uh, implementations of that type of control. Uh, then I moved back to Alberta, and I've been uh, doing various things, but mostly getting up to speed on doing the kind of design that's uh, possible with uh, 3D modeling software. Amongst other things, I, I decided to tackle a problem that affects me personally, which has to do with the, uh, the riding of bicycles. And I used my uh, expertise with the modeling software to create the, the design for a new bicycle seat and uh, ultimately have been uh, promoting it and trying to get people interested in it. This has been going on for about five years now, and uh, we're uh, really starting to get some traction. 
uh, getting good feedback on it. And generally speaking, that's kind of what's been occupying me for the last little while. Wow, that's so great. And I, I think I find it really interesting that you started within medical research. How did that how did that transition happen? And would you say you have been able to translate anything about medical research to solving other problems? Well, the short answer is yes. I have a degree in biochemistry. And I originally, I was working in some, I would describe them as prestigious laboratories in Edmonton. There were some incredible people working there at the time and managed to get involved with a group on the campus there that were doing cutting edge research into visualizing the data that was being collected from x-ray crystallography differentiometers. And uh, we were using some of the earliest computer graphics systems at the time to bring this stuff to life. And they were using that to model the uh, series of proteins. In the course of getting involved in all of that, I, I uh, started working with some people and one person in particular who is uh, probably one of the most brilliant engineers and computer software designers I've ever met. And he kind of got me involved in uh, going much farther down that road than I other would have been able to, uh, partly because there's a lot to software design, especially that it's not intuitive. You, you kind of have to be exposed to it from one way or another. And having a mentor like him was uh, really a crucial part of that whole thing. So uh, he uh, kind of planted the bug, <laughs> as it were. And uh, I've been uh, developing software for a long time now. And I actually have a software project ongoing right now, but it's kind of on hold because of COVID. Um, might come back to it at some point, but I, uh, I've always I grew, I grew up I grew up on a farm, and I've always been interested in mechanical design, and that's part of the motive for getting into the bike seat. Plus, I like biking, and I wouldn't be able to continue it if I didn't do that. I mean, the beauty of tech, as it were, is the fact that there's no designated path. And as long as you have that curiosity and the readiness to learn something new, I'm just, I'm intrigued by that fact that there's no age restriction, there's no background restriction. All you need is your curious mind. Once you graduate from university, you get a, a, a key. It's called a degree. It's only a key. You got to go open locks and find the one you like. And based on your, I mean, you're a veteran, Gary. I just, I'm just wondering, I'm curious, like, what has in the past, say, 40 years that you've been involved in creating solutions, what, what would you say has changed? What has changed for the better? What do, you do? what do you think has changed for the worse, if there's any? Several things have changed in 40, 45 years. First of all, there's more infrastructure. There's more resources available in the form of human intelligence and, and that kind of thing in Calgary. When we started... We were the only electronics engineering firm in Alberta that I could find. There's a few popped up later, but you had to do it all yourself. You couldn't hire an expert on radios. There weren't any. So that's that's a big change. And the other thing is the tools used for hardware design and even software design have, have gone from, well, on hardware, virtually nothing, to now you can designed everything on, on a computer. You can test it on a computer. You can run it on a computer. When you finally get the final thing, there's always surprises, but they aren't the big ones that destroy the project altogether. Whereas before, you had to build it, test it, change it, test it, change it. And and when it come to um, what Mark's doing with the 
a plastic design to, in my case, usually a housing for, for this stuff to go in, whatnot. I mean, the first one I ran into was our taxi meter, and I was working with the U of C. They have a, uh, they call it environmental design, but it's kind of a industrial design type program, interior design and industrial design combined. Anyway, so they designed the mold for this taxi meter, and it was just a bunch of paper. And when they made the mold, nothing fit, which is apparently normal. Nowadays, with the software that that uh, Mark is using and others, it fits. It works every time. The mold is perfectly designed. You, you, you don't take those risks. Big risk, of course, is in will people buy the great idea. The cost of iterations have been lowered compared to what, what obtained in the past, you'll say? Faster. It's certainly a lot faster. Cost, yeah, your man hours go down. Some of the software can get pretty expensive. Um, it's not on, we don't have any of the real high end stuff, but it's not on home to have $100,000 a year engineering packages. I heard someone say once that the reason they call it hardware is because it is hard. And um, no, the software is the, software is the hardest thing. Yeah. <laughs> because you ask anybody to give you a, a, a you know, a guesstimate of time and costs and outcomes and whatnot of a, of a software idea. I've never heard of anybody getting even close to right. With hardware, we can usually be pretty close to, you know, within 20%. So it's, it's, it's just a different skill. Yeah, I, I meant like the whole, the whole thing that it's harder to get hard, a hardware business to, rock, to take off and scale than software. So let, let's talk a little bit about that. So what makes hardware hard? Why, why is it more challenging to have a hardware startup than it is for software? Well, the simplest answer is if you've got a software project that's all of a sudden taken off, right? Orders are coming in faster than you can handle them, as it were. What's it cost to ship your software to a, a new customer? Somebody wants a thousand of them, you push a button, poof, a thousand go out the door. What happens with a hardware company if you don't have enough money, and you never do, is you made 100 last month, and this month you made 300, and they sold pretty good. And all of a sudden, somebody steps up and wants 5,000. Now what are you going to do? You don't have the money to build them. They're not going to give you money up front. And an order like that will kill a company. Plus, it generally takes four to six months from an order to being able to ship a fair amount of the product. So it's it's a real struggle at that point. It's, it's That's the point at which companies die, hardware companies die. They can die because they don't get enough work. They can die because they get too much. In Alberta, I mean, my perception is that there's a lot of support for entrepreneurs. So Mark, what has been your experience in terms of support from the industry, from the ecosystem, from the government? I mean, am I, is my perception wrong that entrepreneurs get a lot of support or is that biased towards, towards software companies? The, the, the situation has been evolving over the years. I mean, it started out at one point where, I mean, if they didn't laugh you out of the room, <laughs> you know, before you prove something, it would be, uh, you know, you had to come at it with the money to do it or you would, would not do it. But uh, years ago, the Alberta government was actually doing some reasonable things and supporting, uh, you know, basically the what I call the bridge financing, where you go from an idea and the proof of concept to a point where you can actually start 
testing things and looking for investors. The philosophy behind all of that, of course, was basically that if the taxpayers take the risk, then it's spread out enough that uh, nobody in particular is suffering if the thing goes south. And, you know, they uh, spread around some money. Unfortunately, they got taken in by (laughs) some grifters, I call them. Others might call them venture capitalists uh, and uh, ended up at one point putting $33 million into a company that I was involved with before diving it into the ground. Uh, and, and you could tell right away, well, well, I could tell from what was going on internally, they had no intention of actually getting the thing into, you know, fulfilling the business model that had originally been defined for it. And there's a lot of, it's, it's just, it's almost like, you know, if you're familiar with something, you can, you're more open to it new ideas and understanding it people around here are not familiar <laughs> with technology so so do you think we need to be doing a lot more work in educating people about what's up with hardware manufacturing well that's part of it but you also have to do it is the education just goes in one ear and out the other for most people if they don't see it in their environment or put it in their gas tank or whatever it is they're doing with it it doesn't exist for them. And if you come into them and, you know, they don't know you very well and you're proposing something they're not familiar with, they're just going to tell you to get lost. And I've experienced a lot of that kind of rejection. It's, you know, and and some very good ideas went down because of that, uh, just because you couldn't get the grassroots support for it. Ultimately, though, the evolution of that process has seen the rise of what I what what are being referred to as angel investors who are not the professionals like the venture capitalists and they come in earlier in in a business uh, evolution but they have a completely different mindset and and it's all kind of part of a program that as far as I can tell and I've been studying this recently just to get a better idea of what they're looking at and it, it would seem that there's a kind of a schizophrenic process going on here where they're they're trying to take a risk, but they want to mitigate the risk by putting conditions on it that really have nothing to do with whatever it is you're building. It's just basically if you don't have a market presence, they don't want to talk to you. But it's a chicken and egg problem. And, and especially for manufacturing, if you can't do the upfront costs and actually build the component, you can't sell it because you're I mean, anything else would be lying to your customers because you wouldn't be delivering what you actually plan to deliver. I mean, the, the, the challenges, are they, are they are real for sure. And there's really no circumventing them. But so, so what I'm wondering now is what can we be doing more of? For example, do we, if we increase programming support, like maybe the accelerator programs, incubators, if we, if we increase that and target um, hardware startups, do you think that will help? No. What will help, I, Gary? <laughs> the, the accelerators, the platforms of the world are doing a heck of a great job on training people how to take an idea and figure out whether it's any good and figure out how to make it good. Those kinds of very early thinking and weeding out the garbage. Everybody has garbage ideas. Like, Are we, are we able to customize some of this programming just to target the exact challenges in manufacturing? Well, most of what they're teaching applies to both hardware and software. I mean, a product's a product, right? It it has to have a market. It has to make a profit. It has to provide a need, right? Not a want, a need. 
and it doesn't matter whether it's hardware or software. The problem is both hardware and software take some upfront money to get to the point where you've got an MVP. None of them teach much about that because that's not their role. It used to be that the public, the two governments, would share the risk of doing the research side of getting things put together. The philosophy has changed for whatever reason, and I don't know why, so that they will not support you unless you already have products in the market. Well, with a software, you can do a wireframe, you can do you know a basic thing, get it out there for opinions, you're giving it away, and you've solved that problem. With hardware, for instance, Mark's uh, seat, you're looking at $50,000 to be able to build the first 10. You don't have that luxury and they won't talk to you because you haven't got product in the market. So it's become, you know, share the risk with us. And they were used to be pretty good at the program called IRAP from National Research Council was superb. But now they don't touch anything that isn't already in the market. Okay, so let's let's take a, a going forward approach. What can be done? What can we as an ecosystem do to bridge this gap? There has to be something that has crossed your mind that if I could just get this done, if I could just get this kind of support. In terms of how we design even the funding, like what can be changed around to make sure that we are not killing ideas? Uh, well, if the government's not involved, <laughs> and that's really a political issue for them, they've basically adopted the angel investor attitude, which is they're, they're not going to take the risk if you know there's a any way to get around it. And, and that's just wrong. I mean, that's not their role. So that has to change. But not uh, without that happening, uh, what I would like to see is uh, for a project uh, like the Bike Seek project to take off, start generating some real income and then start reinvesting it and build an ecosystem based on money instead of just talk and ideas and really change the way the vetting process is done so that they're not excluding projects that have real potential but don't fit the mold that the you know the early investors bring to bear on it um, if we can do that I mean nothing succeeds like success right <laughs> well the other the other thing that happens all oh, far too often is is you know the odd hardware company gets going there's been several pretty nice ones in 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 Alberta, in particular in the city. And when they get to the point where they need big growth money, the multiple millions, you can't get it. It's just, that's the nature of the Canadian beast. We, we don't take risks like the Americans do. So they end up being sold. Luckily, a lot of them are still here, or like they basically changed the name. Garmin is one of them. Um, so it's not all bad. I was hoping for some good news. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, Garmin, Garmin's certainly a, a success story. Um, if you go back through its history, well, not the Garmin itself, but the Cochrane version. Yeah. So if we if we look at places in the world where they have a thriving manufacturing sector, what can we glean from them? What can what what what's what's strengthening their system that we have not imported into ours here in Alberta? I think you have to be more specific. <laughs> uh, the Germans have a lot of government support for their uh, manufacturing sector. There's a lot of assistance that people get starting businesses there that you don't get anywhere else that I can tell. Uh, you know, the Japanese, they just have a culture that seems to be accepting of the whole thing. And that's 
a lot of it is the culture. You know, if you don't have the culture, you're just going to keep hitting brick walls. Uh, if you do, then opportunities arise in ways you didn't expect. Yeah, we need to, as a full Canadian society, we need to be able to start taking more risks and trusting one another. That's it's. I mean, if you don't trust, you're not going to take the risk. If you trust, you still might not take the risk, but I mean, that's, that's the way it is. But I mean, the Americans will throw a million dollars at the goofiest stuff. It's crazy, some of the stuff I've seen. Yeah, so the risk-taking is a, is a major one. And I remember, Gary, you were telling me a story about a product you raised money for and ended up spending all the money you raised trying to raise more money. Do you want to share that experience a little bit? I think it was interesting. This, this actually came from NRC RIRAP. They brought this fellow over to see us. PhD uh, ophthalmologist, and he had an idea how to measure the internal pressure in your eye without the poking stuff that they had to do at the time, and it looked reasonable. So IRAP funded half of it. We raised the other half locally uh, from local op- ophthalmologists, and and I mean, if you can raise money from the market that you're going after, you know, it's personal money you know you've probably got a good idea because if you ask somebody, is this a good idea? Man, most people sort of say yes, you know, even if they don't quite think it's great. But ask them for $10,000 and you'll get a more truthful answer. So that's what we did. The ophthalmology community worldwide pretty much got on board. And then we raised uh, $1.5 million after we had a really crude working prototype. And... uh, the people that brought the money in also brought in a new president because our scientist was not president material by a long shot. That guy went off and spent the million and a half doing nothing more but trying to raise $50 million. And when it ran out, he left. And that was the end of that. We never did one more stick of research after he came in. And that was American money that he was going after, but it was Canadian money. It was actually more ophthalmologists. So there's all kinds of stories like this. It's just the nature of the beast. The maturity of the of the business model itself, right? Compared to, to the other things we are more familiar with in terms of starting a business. I mean, Gary, you've you said you've built several products, as challenging as it has been, but you've brought them to market, right? So what what are the positives that we can continue to do? Things that have worked that we can amplify. You gotta do a whole lot with nothing. And, and, and as Canadians, my experience has been we're very good at that. And, and yeah, you just have to be stubborn. You just have to keep going. I mean, as long as you got a bit of bread to eat at night, the house is still warm, the bank's not foreclosing. I mean, you 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 have to run along the edge. It's just the way it is. And, I you know, the bad news of that is I've been doing that for a long time, more than 40 years, and it gets addictive. <laughs> you just... You just keep doing it. Now, luckily, I'm able now at my retirement age to do things like work with Mark and get to experience that uh, high, if you will, when we get there, of course. <laughs> and uh, it, it, it's certainly addictive. You, you can't come from a big company and just jump out into it. It's, it's too scary. Well, there's also an element of the type of projects you tend to get involved with, which what motivates me, I, I mean, you could work as an engineer and, you know, build a circuit board for somebody doing something else. But uh, ultimately, it's 
being able to design that circuit board for a specific purpose that is broader than just the circuit board is not the end, as it were, <laughs> you know, uh, trying to achieve goals and, uh, you know, make changes that are broader than the even the vision of the company you're in. Quite often you do need a circuit board for many reasons. I mean, that it's needed to keep the cost down to do the job, all the standard stuff you think of. But it also makes it your product. And there's a lot of uh, outfits out there that basically try and buy a product off of somebody else, change it and sell it as theirs or combine it with two others and sell it. It's all valid. You make money. It's a good business. But you don't have that psychological ownership. So in terms of trying to lower cost, which is a major challenge in manufacturing, I'm just wondering, are there ways to reimagine maybe the supply chain? My, my experience has been that the key players, if you can bring them in as a partner, uh, not necessarily ownership, but you're part of the team and all of that, that that's a good thing. That, that gets around a lot of that. When your success is good for them, Depend, you know, some of their success depends on your success. They'll work night and day on a, to supply something that's suddenly urgently needed, right? So, you know, we've always, well, Delta T, we never had clients, we never had suppliers, never in 40 years. We had nothing but partners. That was how we thought of them. And frankly, a lot of them think of us that way. One of my best friends was one of our key suppliers. And he wasn't, I didn't even know him when I first met him as a supplier. So I think that's key. I mean, once you reach out to China or India or the United States or Eastern Canada even, the, the, that partnership word gets watered down a long way. Yeah, I just wanted to add that, you know, the, the, the choice of manufacturing process affects us a lot too. And the, one of the reasons we're having, you know, the issues we're having with money here is because of the, the cost of launching an injection mold, for example, uh, process. But the payback is the product then becomes very cheap to manufacture. So you have to go over that financial barrier to get to the point where you can actually make money with it. And, you know, that's the dilemma here is, you know, and there really aren't a lot of options, uh, especially with the sort of thing we're doing because of the way, you know, plastic and the various composite materials are uh, are produced these days. And, and I mean, there's real advantages to going down that route, but the downside is <laughs> you have to be able to make the molds. So, uh, uh, that, that's a choice that you have to make, but ultimately it's driven by the economics of it. Yeah, today's 3D printing is attempting to solve that or bridge that gap. And there is some bigger machines just coming available that can do 3D print type high, high speed. And in other words, not eight hours, but maybe 10, 15 minutes. You're still looking at higher costs. I'm entering an outfit out of the Winnipeg and they have three boxes that their electronics go in and all of that. And they're 3D printing them. And they cost about $250 each just in their 3D printing costs. And they own the machines. If they had an injection mold, it would be forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 for the mold. And those things would, would cost them 40, 40 to $0.50. Cents. So it, it's, you know, 3D printing is, is making a difference. Just not there yet. It's close. Well, it's a moving target too, right? I mean, the evolution of 3D printing has seen dramatic changes. Uh, 
is not there yet, but you know, everyone is expecting at some point you'll be able to 3D print things cheaply. We just don't know when or how. Well, there it is fairly cheap. It's just very slow. We we have a fairly large um, 3D printer, and we make a well, it's just a simple box, really. But they only need two or three a month. But it's 18 hours on the machine. So. I mean, even if it was free, 18 hours is 18 hours. Okay. As we get close to rounding this up, I'm just going to ask you, Mark, what is the one thing that could happen for your startup right now? That would be a big break for you. Well, it would make a big difference if we found somebody with a little bit of money willing to spend on this because it would free up resources and just make the process go a lot faster and more efficiently. It's, we're pretty far down the road on all of this. I've done most of the R&D. There's still some to be done, but it's the sort of thing that you can do on the fly. What I'm really interested in is finding people who you know, want to get involved in this at some level and are willing to get on one of these things and give us feedback. And that's really valuable to us. It's almost as valuable as having them buy one uh, because it gives us that testimonial evidence that ultimately sells a consumer product. And what, what's this called? Where can we find more information about your product? Uh, well, the, the, the seat is called the Prairie Wing. It's a type of design that I call a wing seat, hence the name the wing. Uh, it's designed to support your weight uh, much more, uh, shall we say, uh, naturally than a saddle can. And in fact, I'm making the argument that all of these moves to make people get on bikes and start fighting climate change are going to fail unless they fix the saddle problem. And so that's really what I'm trying to do. It's current too. And, uh, you know, community planners in cities like Edmonton, for example, are announcing their intention of you know, increasing the numbers of cyclists. Uh, but I can tell you right now that the saddle was limiting the industry before the pandemic. Then it kind of took off during the pandemic, but it's going to go back to the old ways after the, you know, people are immunized and the pandemic fades. So, you know, this is really freaking out the industry. If I can get people on board with this, and it's really a, more of a philosophical thing right now than an actual, you know, going out and buy something, but they can look at the website, which is uh, xenomorphics.com, uh, and actually see them in action. And from there, yeah, I mean, there's a way to communicate with me. So. Uh, Xenomorphics is spelled X-E-N-O-M-O-R-P-H-I-X.com. All right. Thanks for that information. And Gary, to you, if there is someone that has an idea right now in Alberta to manufacture something and they don't know where to turn, where should they go? Just send me an email, Gary G, one R, at Delta T, D-E-L-T-A-T-E-E.com. I always talk to anybody about anything that's what's that's what's keeping me that's what's keeping me alive these days <laughs> and and we're now able to have face-to-face -face meetings yeah i got three this week holy cow all right it's been a it's been fun uh chatting with you guys thanks for explaining some of those challenges and people are listening and um if there's something i respect about our attitude here in in the Alberta ecosystem is that can-do attitude. So we can only get better from here. If you haven't already, visit rainforestab.ca and sign the Rainforest Social Contract. 
Become part of the inclusive, silo-busting, sector-agnostic, all-industry, open-sourced, ego-shrinking, ecosystem-building, entrepreneur-focused, wide-open, social barrier-smashing community known as Rainforest Alberta. This episode is brought to you by Community Now Magazine. Engage, inspire, educate together. Music for the show was created by Tony Deldegan. Please be sure to share this episode with everyone you know. Also, don't forget to come by and say hi at the next Rainforest event. Let us know what you think of this podcast. If you're interested in being either a host, sponsor, or a guest of the show, send me an email at rainforestpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.